there's a violence that kind of underlies the mountains that until you spend a few years out there, you don't realize what it is. Cause you might go out in May, it might be beautiful. Birds are chirping, the wind's not howling, but you go out in a January snowstorm and it's legitimately scary. Mm-hmm. You know, the wind is just whipping, the trees are bent over sideways. You might be under two feet of snow in a matter of hours and being curious of how the heck you survive there. Welcome to the Zero Quit Podcast, where I bring you candid conversations with elite athletes, entrepreneurs, specialists, and other creatives. I'm your host, Brock Covington, and through these dialogues, you'll hear powerful stories and practical advice that will help you live a more active and intentional life. If you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and share it with a friend. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Zero Quit Podcast. Today, I have on Zachary Hansen. He is a machine learning expert, entrepreneur, and author of Turning Feral which I conveniently have right here, a modern journey of hunting, trapping, and living intentionally in the wilderness. After a decade of working in the corporate world, Zachary exited a life of suburban comforts and pursuit of purpose and connection to wilderness. What's going on, man? Just enjoying life. You know, it's funny talking about that and getting to live it. Mm-hmm. I literally walked right in. I'm sweaty under here because we just, uh, my, a buddy of mine and I just did a seven-mile trek just to go check our trap line. So <laughs> literally walked in. I was looking at the time and I'm like, we gotta hurry. Yeah. And, you know, we were kind of hustling and bustling through the woods and you know, got back to the house in time to get on with you. So I'm pumped. Yeah. What is that one, two questions? Because it's starting to get cold here in Colorado. One, what is the temperature right now in Idaho? And two, what is that day to day uh I guess what is like your regular life schedule look like between going to trek these trap lines whenever you know you go out and hunt um and then obviously fit in work as well and family time yeah it's a it, it's a constant balance i think and it's something i'm still learning to figure mm-hmm. out but like a lot of people who probably listen to this podcast i'm an early riser it's a get up early right try to get a workout in and then go check trap lines then it's back to do emails daytime work hang out with the family do all that stuff so that's kind of the general idea of every day. But for instance, today, this morning, it's a Monday. Uh, I didn't have to do any work today, which was nice. So literally I'm, I'm doing a job mm-hmm. for Martin trapping. So Martin, Pine Martin, little weasel looking creatures, kind of think of them as really big, just absolutely adorable squirrels. <laughs> um, but I got a job through Fish and Game, like the National Fish and Wildlife actually out of DC, who are doing a multi-year study on carnivore carnivore populations Hmm. and they hired a trapper in idaho myself a trapper in montana and a trapper in maine to get martins this year live trap them and then test them all for covid of all things so i'm out there each morning going through my live traps which i have up in the high country Hmm. um like i said i was we were talking before we started a little seven mile trap line of about 16 different traps and and I have to get up every day and go check those before noon as part of the study because it's all very controlled. And then if I get a Martin, you dispatch it, you swab it, and send the body off for them to do a study on the efficacy and ethicalness of these live traps just to see if there was any damage to the bodies or anything while they were live trapped. Mm. And then I have to take a tic-tac-sized piece of the tongue out and send that to the University of Montana who are doing a PhD study on Martin. So it's just this weird circular world for me where I'm starting to get back to, you know, I I have a lot of higher education Mm -hmm. and doing a little bit of what I love to do and trapping and hunting and mixing it with some of my old life. 
Yeah, it is. It is funny. You come from a very interesting, ba- uh, you know, background, which is why uh, when we first met over Instagram, I was like, "This is a, you know, a uh, quite unique perspective and kind of nuanced uh, lifestyle to come from that AI technology data analyst type world and the move to this, and also specifically with trapping. I'm interested to hear more about this, and obviously got a lot in the book um, because I think through campaigns or just in general, people are getting very into hunting, right? Mm-hmm. But the field and I guess uh, side of things with trapping, you know, you don't really hear much about it. I don't really know anything about it besides mm-hmm. literally, okay, what it is trapping an animal. Um, but let's let's circle back to and I guess you know give you a chance to tell the story of how you ended up now living this lifestyle. One uh, phrase or term that you use in the book that I really like uh, is suburban sedation. So could you describe what suburban sedation is and why that led you to make this change? Yeah. Um, it's funny you bring that up. It is an interesting joining of words that I was able to put together for that book that describes it so well. And I've had a lot of people reach out and use that line. And frankly, I'd forgotten about it. But when I hear it, I'm like, oh, yeah, I wrote that. Mm-hmm. But it, for those who haven't read the book, I grew up in the South, very lower middle class. I was always on the periphery of hunting meaning I didn't have anybody in my nuclear family that hunted. I didn't have friends who necessarily hunted. I knew of people who did and just never got my interest, right? So I grew up not being exposed to it at all. Um, And it wasn't until very later in life, my late 20s, when my ex-wife and I, you know, we did competitive jujitsu for a long time. She was a world champion. We were competing every weekend. You know, we did CrossFit to the nines, I was doing ultra running and I was looking for every edge that I could, you know, as you know, and trying to figure out like dialing in my diet. And then it got to the point where, you know, we're counting our macros, doing all these things and looking at protein contents. And then you start to hear about deer meat or uh, elk meat, whatever the case may be, and wanting to explore that. And that's kind of what got me in hunting. But what prompted this whole move was two things. One, I went through an unexpected divorce from my ex-wife, which was a very good catalyst to say, hey, you know what? I want to try to fully live out in the woods and see what that's all about. Mm-hmm. But prior to that, we were just keeping up with the Joneses. It was literally, you know, we had a nice house in a nice neighborhood with a gate on it. You know, I was working my job, spending most of my time in airports, flying from wherever we live to New York City, DC, San Francisco, just think of all the normal tech hubs mm-hmm. and feeling like I had made it. And then when I, it's kind of like a dog who catches up to a parked car after chasing it and you don't <laughs> really know what to do with it at that point. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt. But everything on the outside was saying, you are succeeding. So I kept going with it, but I felt hollow and empty inside, just absolutely sedated. It was coming home, mowing the grass, you know making a dinner, going to the gym. It was just the same thing over and over again. And I saw no change in that in my future until the day I died. And it started to make me question, like, what is all this for? What are all these material things that I'm gaining really giving me? And it wasn't giving me any joy. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the, the idea of suburban sedation and how I got there. But the real catalytic event was a divorce and then having a curiosity of where my food came from. Yeah, I 
I think that what what it made me think of when you were explaining it was how, because you referenced, you know, you you were a high achiever. You you were doing jujitsu and ultra races, and you were you you were living a very um, active lifestyle, not only you know physically, but as far as like actually having pursuits and goals and aspirations. Uh, and yet they like the banality of your existence was still there. It still felt very mundane. And I think people get caught up in that today where maybe it's like a bunch of self-help books or Gary V or whatever it is where people are trying to fill the hole in their life uh, with optimization and a bunch of biohacks and all mm-hmm. these different uh, modalities, which might turn someone who has, let's say, no personal drive or motivation or uh current success in their life might get them towards that path. But yeah, if you don't clearly define the, you know, end goal for yourself or, or clearly have a purpose and meaning and why internally, then all these kind of external factors aren't going to uh, do it for you. Um, so when you make this move, why did you end up choosing Atlanta, Idaho specifically? Cause I, when I, when I was looking into that, I was like, I had never heard of, uh, Atlanta, Idaho, obviously you think of Atlanta, Georgia. Yep. Um, so why Idaho? Well, there are a couple things. So well, to touch on what you just said real quick before we yeah. move on, um, the banality of the existence, even when you push yourself and finding that that can still be there for people, like you could fill voids with all sorts of challenging things and like you mentioned i've always been someone who pushes myself i don't need an extra hand on my back to say hey go do something hard like i always want to do stuff Mm -hmm. that's hard but in that white picket fence world what i think i realized was that there was no real consequence for the actions i took meaning if i ran an ultra marathon this has happened before and i hurt my foot or i'm tired you can just quit there's no consequence Mm -hmm. You know, jujitsu, you can tap out, you know, all these different things. There's always an easy button, easy way out. And I think what I was looking for in this move and like this transition is being faced with real consequences for my actions and the things that I don't know, forcing me a little bit more to commit and to be fully present for something. You know, I, I don't think I always was taking those outs, but they were always there. And that always kind of struck a chord with me. And I think that was one of the reasons I went down the path I did of moving out here and we can talk a little later about what that means to have real consequences and learning it the hard way. But yeah, it kind of makes you think of like taking the floaties off. Like finally, you know, cause it, yes, at the end of the day, like you still could, you know, as I think you were getting into your career post uh, 08 crash and all of that, but like mm-hmm. you still could lose your job. You could have, you know, different problems. You could hurt yourself in an ultra, but like you mentioned, these aren't, as dire consequences so like the pressures to stick with something and and it also it, yeah it, it still ends up being this very artificial uh way of trying to reinvigorate or reconfigure uh, what we maybe had before some of this suburban industrial like revolution i guess in, in society yeah and like you said with self-help books too which i'm all for and i've read a lot of them in my life but a lot of them get back to the basics of, you know, our ancestors, it was do Mm -hmm. or die. And all these things that we build and construct in our modern lives that are very cushy, you know, that are pushing us, you know, the sports, the, you know, taking a job that you might be a little unqualified for, it's all 
an artificial recreation of mm -hmm. those do or die moments, but there's actually not really the die aspect of it. If you know what I mean? There's not really the threat of losing your life in most cases. So walking it back towards why Idaho, uh, what, what prompted you to choose this location specifically? Well, my ex-wife and I didn't travel much domestically. We kind of had that lifestyle, like, let's go do a tropical vacation. So we would go to like Turkey and other places overseas and do the typical, like one week out of the year, we go do this vacation. It's cushy, mm -hmm. you know, stay in an Airbnb, have some drinks, sit by a pool, whatever. Um, but the year before we got divorced, I don't know where it was probably a podcast, to be honest, is probably listening to Joe Rogan or campaigns mm -hmm. or somebody and you know, talking about Idaho and how beautiful it is, blah, blah, blah. So I proposed to my ex-wife. I'm like, hey, we should go to Idaho. And so we kind of Googled it. She saw some pictures. She's like, yeah, let's do it. I'm like, cool. So we flew into Boise, Idaho, and we were going to stay in Stanley, which is on the north side of the Sawtooth Mountains, which if I'm looking out my window right now, 30-mile direct line over the Sawtooth Wilderness is Stanley. Um, mm -hmm. So we drove there, and this was right at the beginning of my kind of adult-onset hunting curiosity. Um, I had hunted a deer at that point. And when we drove up here from Boise to Stanley, I saw elk, I saw deer, I saw bald eagles, I saw antelope, I saw a moose. And then when we were hiking, I saw a wolf. So it was literally everything. And I looked at my ex-wife, I was like, we are moving here. And my ex-wife was an FBI special agent and doesn't have a lot of, or didn't have a lot of autonomy on where she can move. She's like, mm -hmm. you know, maybe in 20 years when I retire from you know, the feds, whatever. And I was like, no, you don't understand. Like I feel a pull to this place. And I really truly did. And fast forward four or five months, I, you know, found out some unfortunate things and we decided very cordially that we were going to end our marriage. No kids at the time, which was great. Mm -hmm. um, and go our separate ways. And I was kind of sitting in my driveway in Louisiana, where I was at before, like, where do I go? Like, what do I do in my life right now? And I was like, I'm just going to drive north. And I just pointed my car north with a few things I had in my truck and ended up in Boise, Idaho, and ultimately landed there, got a month to month apartment and started looking at properties all around Idaho and just happened to come across a place in Atlanta, Idaho. I'm like, that looks cool. Yeah. And made the drive out to talk with somebody about this cabin. And it was a five hour drive down an 80 mile dirt road, um, still icy in April when I was looking and I was like, man, this is out here and saw the place, fell in love with it and kind of never looked back. Yeah, we, not quite to that extent, but my wife and I had a little bit of a similar experience. So we were born and raised in Richmond, Virginia, lived yeah. there our whole lives. And uh, we definitely had this idealization of the West, right? This like a belief that, all right, that, you know, the, the West and the mountains and yeah, it's calling our name, right? But you got to go and see it and, and see yes. if that's, you know, if it's just a facade and we're just, you know, imagining this, uh, this illusion essentially. So we, we, we flew out in January, saw Denver, but it was particularly when we came down to Colorado Springs that we were a lot closer to the mountains, a lot slower pace of life, a lot away from that um, urban development and constant skyscrapers. It was kind of just a look at the mountains and had that same kind of realization, like, yeah, this is for us. This is what we need. Um, and in a way, it's more than just like being close to the mountains or seeing the animals that you reference, but it is just a different pace of life. And uh, making such a dramatic change in your life and moving somewhere um, that uh, 
secluded in a way does force a lot of habitual changes and personal changes that you don't always perceive uh, that they're going to entail immediately. So in regards to that, what was your perception of what quote unquote turning feral was going to be like? And what did it actually end up being in reality? I mean, the reality is I got my ass kicked and going going back to the idea of consequences for actions, you know, I think a lot of people today idealize off-grid lifestyles, homesteading, and I'm full, I'm in full support of that. I think it's an amazing endeavor, but like you, like I have a close tie to Richmond because I used to work at Capital One, Okay, but I grew up on the East Coast too, a little further South in Georgia and South Carolina. People idealize the West. It looks amazing. You go out, you fall in love, but there's a violence that kind of underlies the mountains that until you spend a few years out there, you don't realize what it is because you might go out in May. It might be beautiful. Birds are chirping. The wind's not howling, but you go out in a January snowstorm and it's legitimately scary. Mm-hmm. You know, the wind is just whipping. The trees are bent over sideways. You might be under two feet of snow in a matter of hours and being curious of how the heck you survive there. So that was the experience was coming here with rose colored glasses to buying this cabin. And the story I tell, I think in the book, and I tell a lot of people is just using a wood burning stove for the first time is so eye opening where it was in the teens, maybe zero, maybe a little below the first few nights I was up here. And I was trying to build a fire in my wood burning stove to warm my house mm-hmm. and it just kept going out. So I just like spent a few nights just kind of like jackhammering, freezing, trying <laughs> to get a fire going before I got the courage to go ask a neighbor. And the neighbor came over and was like, Hey, you know, dummy, the flu's not open. So you're not getting any oxygen and you know, oxygen mm. is what fuels a fire. It just really silly stuff like that, but there's genuine consequences to it. You know, if I didn't have a neighbor nearby, like, would you freeze to death? Or if you had kids, which I didn't at the time, like, yeah, they'd be sitting there saying, daddy, I'm cold. It's like, well, what do you do? It's like, I'm out of ideas without help. So, um, yeah, it, it was just that first taste of real consequences for the actions that I was taking and learning yeah. the hard way. So with those first few months, cause that's what I'm thinking about. And, you know, but before this podcast, I was telling you, you know, these are this is within the realm of what I'm considering doing potentially down the line. You know, my year, uh, my wife and I have talked about this, you know, getting land and doing some sort of homesteading and kind of slowly transitioning to that life. What is it like those first few months where you do have a big learning curve? Uh, how, how welcoming are neighbors? What resources do you go to? Is it purely neighbors or are you able to kind of look towards online resources in this day and age? Do you look to certain books? How, how uh, do you take that? transition a little bit more um, successfully all of the above yeah d all of the above yeah. it, it was i mean youtube's been my best friend since i started hunting and trapping and ultimately kind of pseudo homesteading mm-hmm. but what i found and i talk like i wrapped the book up in this because i think a lot of people get an idea of homesteading and particularly young men who might be single. And I was at the time of myself moving out of here was a, I'm fed up with 
society. I'm fed up with how I'm being treated. I'm fed up with dating, whatever it is. Yeah. Buck the system. I'm going to go be a mountain man. And that was the mentality that I had when I came out here. It's like, I just want to rely on myself. But that journey, those first few months where I was having to use YouTube, having to grab certain books to figure things out, like it was great, but I was missing something. And it wasn't until I actually engaged with the very small community, which is 38 year round residents in Atlanta, that I kind of actually began to grow and I heal from the trauma that kind of brought me out here in the first place, as well as actually learn at a much higher rate. So, you know, it was the community brought me out, but to your question in there, it was a huge vetting process before local folks here wanted to open up to me. I think there's always like in a lot of things, like in endurance racing, like you might have somebody who comes in and is like, yeah, I'm going to do an ultra. And if you've run several ultras, maybe it's ego. I don't know, but everybody, <laughs> same with jujitsu is like the whole blue belt phenomena. It's like, yeah. Great. I'm excited you're here. I'm never going to see you get your black belt. You, know, yeah, you just like, kind of think that. You know. I guess it's like seeing if people will last. Like you're, you're trying to like make it, make a value judgment on whether you think they're going to, as you stick with this, or they're going to DNF or, you know, yep. this guy's going to sell us house and move back to, you know, a corporate world in no time. And, and that's exactly what it was. So it was this, uh, it wasn't hostile, but it was definitely not warm. Right. It wasn't until, you know, I think people would see me like drive by our cabin a few times a day and see me out chopping wood by hand. It's like, okay, well, he's at least working hard, you know. And then the one thing that I've done well, I believe, is just completely bury my ego in all of this. So it took a little bit of prying, but I eventually got there. And now it's like, if I don't know, I'm not embarrassed to ask. Mm -hmm. And to them, some of it is just like probably like gobsmacked, like, how did you make it this far in life? But, you know, <laughs> as a millennial who grew up in a suburban area, like there's just so much that we just push off on other people, like fixing toilets yeah. or hanging drywall or changing the oil in our cars. It's just stuff that I didn't touch growing up. Yeah, and like offhand it. I carry embarrassment for it. I'm like, yeah, I'm an adult man and I don't know how to do this, but, you know, kind of falling on the sword and being like, hey, like, I just don't know. I want to learn and I'm willing to go through this with you, but I need your help. And, you know, YouTube's helped me there, but ultimately it was the community that's kind of rallied around. And once you build that trust, they, you know, they'll do anything for you at the drop of a hat. I like that point. And it's something that I've done, I think, better the older I've gotten is balancing that uh, or really embodying that humility and, and erasing completely that ego. And I want to say completely is because sometimes it's not even like I want to hold on to some or, or, or manifest some kind of respect when I'm, I'm approaching someone with a question, but it's almost like I feel that I'll be looked down upon to have no knowledge. So yeah. if I go in to talk about the car uh, and I have, I have no auto experience at all. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I want to at least use the right terms and kind of act like I roughly know what I'm talking about and then ask my question when in reality I should just completely accept my ignorance uh and just wholesale be like hey i don't know any of this stuff would you teach me and go from there and i think uh by trying to protect a small portion of your ego uh you really just 
hold yourself back and delay that that full um i think uh, appreciation from those people of your own kind of ignorance and humility with that uh with where you live out now how do you balance self-sufficiency with modern conveniences because this is something i've talked to a friend of mine too that has started to try to make that transition himself. He, he hunts, he's hunted for years. And so he's kind of already started on that path. And I know you kind of reference, okay, you're out here, you're chopping your wood, you're doing the work. But at the same time, you know, I wonder, hey, do you get any Amazon deliveries? You know, how often are you trying to drive to a grocery store or a Costco? You know, as you, we talked before this, you got Starlink. So how do you balance some of these, um, you know, this, how do you define this balance, I guess, of self-sufficiency versus modern conveniences? So... My wife and I have two young kids now. Um, I'm remarried, fantastic mountain woman. We've got a two and a half year old, a one and a half year old, and we've got another on the way. So, you know, where she and I started when we first got this cabin and what we now kind of ascribe to from that pseudo modernism is starkly different than where we thought it would be when we started this journey. You know, we thought hunt all the food, like only eat food that we kill, get a greenhouse out here, which we still don't have, you know, have, make sure we have chickens and just be completely self-sufficient. What is really manifested is what works for us. And what has started to work for us is, yeah, a little bit of all that grow some of our own veggies, you know, experiment with different things. You know, heck, we eat beaver meat that I trap on the trap line some, but it's not all the time. And to your point, we still often go down and hunt at the grocery store. You know, mm -hmm. I, I we made some beef ribs last night that we got from Costco and they were freaking delicious. Uh, so it has just been a figuring out what works for us, especially when we have young kids. Um, and that goes across the board from going down for doctor's appointments or seeing if weather comes in and we need to go down and stay with family because, you know, we don't want to be snowed in for a week and a half with two young kids. Like it, it's, it ebbs and flows, I guess is the best way to put it. And that has been a huge experiment in me trying to bury my own ego because, you know, this whole idea of turning feral in my mind originally was like solo mountain man. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be out there. I don't need to rely on anybody else, but that's not the case. I've had to rely on community. Now I have a young family and there's just concessions that you have to make to figure that out. Um, now, what I would say is we are doing our best from a feral family perspective to be prepared for the time and, you know, we're not doomsday preppers by any stretch of the imagination, but for stuff to turn off and to be yeah. whole, to be prepared enough to where it's not such a jarring transition that we just lose our minds. And a perfect example of this that happened this spring. Ever since we moved in the cabin, we have town water. So our little town of 30 people, we have a water co-op. We do water catchment, very light treatment to it. And ever since I moved up here, I go turn my faucet on and water comes out. So water was never an issue for me. But in the spring, April, so to speak, two babies in the house, washing bottles all the time. I go turn the faucet on one morning and psh, you just hear air. I'm like, oh, that's weird. Turns out, you know, it's a town co-op, a pipe burst somewhere. 
Like, mm. well, shit, now you have no water. You have two babies, all of this stuff. What do you do? Well, you're not washing clothes and you're having to do all sorts of different things. Thankfully, we have river water and we have natural springs. But I was having to go and take five gallon buckets to a natural spring a mile from our house, come back, sponge bathe, do mm-hmm. this stuff. And it was just a complete shift of how we live our lives that's just based around water that we just had not ever really thought about until it happened. So that point being us trying to prepare for those different eventualities, like, of course, now we have extra water on hand and we have Mm -hmm. gal or five gallon water jugs dedicated just to that. And if we have to go to the springs and back, we'll know how to do it. But yeah, that's where we're at. Yeah. Well, I think that is a great story and it it, uh, exemplifies exactly the value of self-sufficiency and, and just general preparedness. Like you said, not everyone has to be a doomsday prepper, but just having a general sense of preparedness. And that was going to be my next question was, you know, in a, in a day and age where we have witnessed now, not just inflation with prices and, you know, unfortunately my, my dear eggs are so expensive nowadays, but uh, we also see shortages, right? In 2020, you can't get milk, can't get eggs, or can't get you know a variety of different things. Uh, and then also trying to eliminate or avoid, I should say, foods with less pesticides, less chemicals pumped into them and hormones and all that, whether it's meat, whether it is your veggies. Uh, I, I don't know if you could expand any further upon that, uh, you know, that need, I think, at this point in age to have some more self-sufficiency in your life and not be so dependent like we talked about on an auto mechanic or on the grocery store for every everything that you eat yeah and i talk about it a little bit in the book but it's like you know you go to the grocery store and all of a sudden that meat's not there like everybody for the most part in 2020 experienced that it was short-lived thankfully but it's also quickly forgotten. It's like an amnesia around it. And I think the people who are still interested in this homesteading and learning how to be a little more self-sufficient, maybe haven't forgotten about that. Well, to cut you off, it kind of shows you too, how quickly things can go to hell. You know, like it only took a week before people were panicking about toilet paper or meat, like you mentioned, but imagine that went on for two weeks or three weeks. Or I think it was around 2020 or maybe it was 2021 where Texas had a big snowstorm and lost power for a few weeks, you know? Uh, So it it really kind of does go to show how quickly things can get chaotic. And I think confidence today comes from knowing regardless of where you're at, whether you're in a town of 35 people at the end of an 80 mile dirt road, like we are, or whether you're in a neighborhood in um, outside of Richmond, Virginia, mm-hmm. you know, if the power goes off outside of Richmond during a snowstorm and it's say similar to what happened in Texas, how long could you survive? Right. Do you have a generator and do you have a failover switch for your home to keep stuff warm? You know, could you go out in the woods and shoot a deer, you know, out of season, of course, and and process it enough to where your family could eat on top of that for a while? Mm-hmm. And figuring out where those bounds are is what I think breeds confidence today is, you know, again, not being doomsday preppers, but saying we could go this long, I know, without having to rely on the system that we now know has chinks in its armor and has shown instances of failure. Like, what does that mean? Like, how mm-hmm. long can you go? And Back to the water situation, I had a, a guy um, in a group that I'm in, Clay Martin. He's a ex-Special Forces guy, does a, a lot of different kind of prep 
type of courses, things like that. And I was telling him about our water situation and you know, we're relatively well prepared. We have fresh springs. We can go get water that doesn't need treatment. So that's very fortunate, but it still upended our lives so much. Like we were like on day three, we're like, wow, like, is this our life for a while? Like, this is absolutely, <laughs> you know, it's excruciating. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, think about it this way. You're somewhere where you can go get water. That's great. You're, you're fortunate. Imagine being in a pillbox apartment on the 34th floor of a skyscraper in New York and you go turn your faucet off. You have millions of people within a several square mile area that are no longer having water. What happens with that panic? And then what happens when people are starting to go and then drink out of a puddle on day seven and then spreading disease issues? He's like, you can play out these scenarios where you see how these things metastasize so quickly. But again, if you go back to like this prep lifestyle, the sustainability, it's like, how long can you go comfortably and be prepared for it and think about these different eventualities and these different modalities that you could at least get? You don't have to be proficient. You don't have to be a professional, but enough to have a little bit of confidence that, hey, you know, power goes out, I can go run my generator for three days mm-hmm. and then I'll worry about what comes next or, you know, water goes out. I've got a catchment system. I've got, you know, at least 50 gallons of water always sitting there that's ready to go. I'm okay for a couple of days. And I think that's where a lot of the sustainability stuff is going to. And, and frankly, like I said, that's kind of where we're at is just this test and learn and knowing that we'd be comfortable for a little while if stuff breaks down and we go back to a place where the things we rely on just don't work anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what pushback have you gotten, not just from, let's say, friends or family that, you know, now have to make the trek out to see the little ones, but also, you know, let's say previous coworkers or anyone you still communicate with from that, that still lives in, you know, suburbia or in that cor- corporate world. What are some of the, the questions or criticisms that you get? Honestly, it's been very little on the criticism side. It's 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 been eye-opening from the perspective that especially still writing that corporate world. Let's take that for example. So there are days where I'd be on work and I'd be on a Zoom call and let's say I just checked my trap line. Let's say I've got two coyotes and I'm in my workshop and literally like blood on my hands. Mm-hmm. I'm logging into a Zoom call to do a scrum stand up for a, a tech pod for, you know, some AI model that we're building. And, you know, I forget to blur my background and there's a dead coyote behind me. (laughs) And, you know, given work culture today, I'm like, oh crap, I'm like blurring my thing. But Mm -hmm. it's been hilarious how often, you know, whether people have like read the book or talked to me in a one-on-one or just seen where I'm living behind me in a screen is people reach out, male, female, 20 years old, 60 years old. And they're like, how are you doing what you're doing? I want a taste of it. They're like, how can I get a taste of that? Like it is, it's funny because it's hushed in corporate land. Mm -hmm. It's like, it's almost taboo to talk about because you kind of get written off. Or I felt like I was being written off as like a doomsday prepper. You know, here's the crazy guy going out there and uh, trying to build a lifestyle outside of the norm. But 90% of the people that I talk to are, super supportive, super interested, and want to figure out how to introduce a little bit of feralness into their own life, whether that's just from a feeling perspective, getting to touch, feel, understand what it is like to get back to nature more, or they want to 
be more prepared themselves. And it's funny because you get that 50 to 60 age group, you know, the, the boomers, I guess you'd call it. And half of them reach out and they'll be like, that's what I grew up with. You know, my parents were hunting. My parents were, um, you know, they didn't keep their money in a bank because they didn't trust it. And they kept it in, you know, the mattress, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. the case is, but they're like, that's how I grew up. And I remember it was all okay. Like we were ready and it wasn't taboo. And now they're wanting to touch back on that too. Yeah. So there's almost like this curiosity to return back to the state of their, their parents or grandparents. What do you find to be like the sticking point f- that stops people from making the transition uh, or yeah, that like really, you know, holds them back from, from committing once they have that desire to make the change? Well, it's interesting. It'd be very easy for me to sit here and be like, you know, people just don't have the discipline. You want to do it, just just go do it. Yeah. But reflecting now that I have young children, like I'm very fortunate that we're already here when my wife and I started building a family. Mm -hmm. Objectively, if I looked back and I had children when I started this, it would have been a much more piecemeal approach. And I probably went in a bought a cabin at the end of an 80 mile dirt road, <laughs> not knowing what I was doing. If I'm just being mm-hmm. honest, I probably wouldn't have, I wouldn't want to put my kids knowing my ineptitude. I wouldn't yes. want to have put my kids and brought them along with that. And, you know, I think they would have been okay if we would have done it, but frankly, I, I think I would have not pulled the trigger. Um, and that's where I think a lot of people just have trepidation or don't, go all in because they, they have families, they have people they need to support. They have like a few too many roots dug into their soil. Right. And that's a great metaphor for it. Like they're, they're not stuck, but they have things holding them there. And I think that's the biggest holdup. And I think where I'm coaching folks now and when people reach out, it's, you can still introduce stuff in your day to day. Like you don't have to do what I did and rip up the carpet Mm-hmm. you know, tear down everything to the foundation and rebuild. You don't have to do that. That's great. You'll cut the learning curve down significantly by doing that. But, you know, you can get that tomato plant and put it in your windowsill. You can see if your HOA covenants let you have a few chickens, you know, mm-hmm. so you can keep up with your egg demand with how much you're working out, Brock. You know, yeah. it's now my HOA, different... my HOA doesn't let me do nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have to do covert chickens. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it, all those little things though. And I think a lot of people believe that they have to do everything to be able to get benefit. And that's where I would argue little bits and trying different mm-hmm. things will still get you the same result ultimately, whether that's the the kind of metaphysical benefits of sparking that spirit of being back to nature, even if it's just having a little plant in your windowsill mm-hmm. or, you know, building something by hand, like with hand-sewn logs, like it's a spectrum of course, but you can still access that feeling yeah, wherever you're at. So this is an easy question for me to ask because it is, like I said, from a more personal note, what would be your advice to someone Let's say they got a year or two. Maybe they're maybe they bought the property. Maybe they're looking for a property. What is your general advice to someone who's looking or or ready to make that change and is committing to it? What are some of the things they should keep in mind or you know grab on their way? Some resources to think about. What would you think, man? What would you tell your younger self? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, 
that's actually not an easy question. That's a hard question because, <laughs> you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, right? Of course. I had no idea what it meant to be in a real winter at hmm. all. You know, I grew up southeast. You got a dusting of yeah. snow <laughs> once a year in February and everything shut down for four days. Yep. yep. That was winter. But 10 feet of snow, putting chains on your tires to be able to go anywhere, uh, shoveling your driveway, snowballing. I'm saying all that to say, like, wherever you're choosing to go, and this is a catch-22 because parts of me want to say, Go spend some time there at all points of the year and just really understand what you're getting into. But also there's a benefit of not really understanding what you're getting into to learn. And if you're already committed to this property, it speaks to you. There's no DNF you know, you once you're there. <laughs> spiritual pull, like you're going to figure it out. And mm -hmm. I happen to learn a little bit better, I feel, by feet to the fire jumping in. I have a tendency personally to do a what is it? Paralysis by analysis. Mm -hmm. If I go and I start like nitpicking, I'm like, well, you know, this particular property is at 7,000 feet and is going to get this much snow, but this one's at 6,000 and that might be more tenable, but this doesn't have X, Y, and Z that I really like about this other property. So I would say find something that your intuition is drawing you to mm -hmm. and, and go for it and figure it out and you know, educate yourself, of course, as much as you can by YouTube books about the region, but you know, just go and do is still kind of my, yeah, my go to. Well, I, I like that. Cause one thing I was going to ask you is it ties back to your Instagram username is, uh, let me die learning. So can you talk a little bit about that attitude and that, that life philosophy? Yeah, it comes from my granddad truthfully. So, you know, he wasn't a mountain man. You know, they, they, they lived up in North Georgia in a mountain golf community. I mean, so I was around mountains as a young kid and I always loved going up there, but he made me a promise. And it's one of those things where they're still alive today. I talk with them all the time. They're fantastic people, great mentors. He probably doesn't remember it, but he always said like, if you want, this was pre-internet, right? Or we had DSL. He probably didn't know what it was at the time, but he's like, if you want to learn something, go get a book. And that has been my philosophy my whole life. I love books. I know you do too, Brock. I see mm -hmm. you're posting all the time. Like my library is everything to me, whether it's from Nietzsche to whomever. But he said, if you want to learn something, get a book. And he made a promise to me. He's like, you ever want to learn something, I will buy you the book. And from like a 10-year-old kid, you know, right before Amazon came along <laughs> through Amazon, like I took him up on that until I had my own job and I could buy my books myself. I'd be like, granddad, I want to learn X, Y, Z. And it could be finance. And he'd be like, okay, what book? I'm like, rich dad, poor dad, Guy Kawasaki. Great. Yeah. At my door. So it was always learning. And he's like, there will always be people smarter than you. He's like, the one thing you can control is just continuing to take in information, continuing to try to expand your horizons and look from other people's perspectives. And that's something that I've always just valued. And it's something that I'll do to the day I die. So it kind of fit like my goal, you know, there's the old joke about you want to use your body, you know, skid into your grave, you know, beat up, banged up all of that. And so, you know, you've lived a life well, that was worth everything that you wanted to push for 
Mm-hmm. I agree with that. But for me, it's like, I want to just skid into my grave, like learning something new, like challenging myself to something that I wasn't exposed to before. Yeah. I like that. It's, it kind of reminds me of something I talked to my friend about how uh, I don't, we look at, let's say, our elders uh, and grandparents as, you know, oh, they don't they don't know how to open a PDF or they can't send yeah. an email, uh, but they have such richness and knowledge um, through experience, through the ways that they maybe learned how to do it, that uh, it, it just, to me, it reminds me that not to have that approach of knowing everything about anything and, and really having that openness. It goes back to the humility, um, not to, to not to expand this and make it more esoteric than it needs to be, but simply having the attitude of like a lifelong pursuit of learning, I think it aids us in all areas of our life. Um, yeah. There's a saying that I have adopted is I have strong, opi- strong opinions loosely held. Yeah. Meaning I have my opinions but I have never been in a situation where I've let my ego keep me from looking at it from someone else's perspective and realizing that that opinion could be wrong. In fact, I'm, again, I come from a kind of scientific background, so I'm always looking to disprove myself almost, you know, it's. Yeah. Well, that, it fits in with the book I'm reading now. It's beyond good and evil and Nietzsche's whole like uh, rejection of, of truth seeking or, or objective truth in that way. And it, what you were just talking about reminds me of uh, Pascal. I don't know if you've read any of him, mm-hmm. but he has that one uh, Ponce about how when you're disagreeing with somebody, oftentimes like you're both right in the sense that, you know, from your perspective, uh, you know, you're right. And from their perspective, they're right, because it might just be a difference of information or knowledge. Uh, you know, like if I look at um, this book, you're seeing the back of the page. So for you, this is, you know, let's say the cover, but for me, it's a different cover. It's, it's a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sometimes there's a different per- difference of perspective, difference of knowledge, um, subjectivity, all of that. So yeah, approaching everything with less certainty and rigidity, um, less dogmatism. I think we end up in a, in a much better place. Uh, and we're in a place where that dogmatism and oh, that yeah. <laughs> heels dug in mentality it's so off-putting too and that's what's so interesting to me and at least the circles of people that i run in everything is just seems so off-putting it's like why like why why can't we look at things from both perspectives like yeah like i recognize that i'm looking at that back cover but if i took a second i could realize that you're looking at it face on you're seeing a completely different view on the cover and then we can have a conversation and talk about the contents in between yeah. It's just something that's been lost in our generation for whatever reason. Yeah, well, people like their political sides and their wars and their you know blue and reds and all of that, and to where it's it, there's only one right side, there's only one right way to look at something. So, uh, but w- one thing you referenced a little bit earlier was the uh, impact and, and assistance of community with your transition. So I'm going to read this quote from your book because I thought it was helpful. It's where you said, what mattered to everyone in our village was that as a community member, you were capable of showing up and helping out when the time came. And you referenced that it did. Uh, and, and I like that because you, know, you, you talk about the story of the pipe bursting. Everyone's kind of in it together. And mm-hmm. obviously, it's a lot easier to do that in, in a small community of 35 or what do you say, 35 or 38 people rather than you know, 35,000, 35 million in a state. Um, but what do you think the value is, or I guess, how could you speak further to the value of community, um, especially as we we're just discussing how divided and divisive the country can be? Yeah. And 
I'm going to re-reference the consequences for actions. Like it's an interesting experiment up here in Atlanta, like 38 year round people, you know, it ebbs and flows. Like there's obviously more access in the summer. We get more summer traffic, but in the winter, you know, last year we were all, um, there was a snow slide down the road that took, it was 30 feet high with a bunch of big trees. So our little highway department, it took, you know, five days to cut through. Um, people share food, people do all this stuff. So it, when you have that small of a community and, and it's interesting in Atlanta, we have gay couples, we have, uh, you know, people who are more like have lived here their whole lives, grew up with their parents mining in this town that are, you know, we literally have the full spectrum of what would be political views as well as lifestyles, mm -hmm. income levels, all within 38 people. It's, it's insane. It's a perfect microcosm of like a big city. But where there's difference is in the past, like big cities, you might have an argument with somebody at a bar over some political viewpoint, and then you pat each other on the back, you have a drink together, or you, know, you get in a fight with somebody, and that's all it is. It's a fight. And then you drink a beer and you're best friends after that. Mm -hmm. We've lost that. But in this microcosm of Atlanta, it's amazing because on the tail end of that is consequences. So, you know, if somebody is so entrenched in their viewpoint that they won't talk or help somebody, gotcha. that's a direct impact back on them when they need help. So mm -hmm. everybody like when shit hits the fan, which is kind of often here and you know, where we're living, you squash all the beef immediately. You might go back to not agreeing with that person or not really liking that person after the fact, but when there is a need, like water, you know, you help each other out. Like we have people delivering water to our house because they knew we had little babies. Mm -hmm. um, same thing, like when the power goes out, people would bring over oil lamps. When we first lost power a lot before I had a backup generator running, you know, we had neighbors who'd bring us oil lamps because they knew we had little kids and they'd be here, use these for the next few days. We have extra. And it's, the ability to recognize that we're all just humans. And when yeah. you have to face these consequential actions all the time, it's easy to peel that back. Now, I don't know how you replicate that going from 38 yeah. well, to a count of 300 to thousands to millions, but it's kind of beautiful. I, I haven't thought about it in the perspective that you described it because, I mean, it's a fairly generic question, right? Like, what does community mean? Well, it's, you know, it's valuable. It's helping each other. Obviously, it's important for a small community. But what you said that I haven't really heard of or thought about is the uh, implementation of consequences or like the inherent uh, fact of this consequences. Uh, because like you mentioned, if I go have an argument with a neighbor or uh, have some issue with someone locally in town, I, I might not see them ever again. Um, yeah. or, or like their ability or yeah, their ability to impact whether I drink water or can take care of my family, it's it's very uh, minute. But I wonder, yeah, like how can we how can we put in place these incentives or in this instance decentivize people from acting, let's say negatively or or being so dogmatic in their views that we can kind of reinvigorate some of that community on a large scale. I'm not really sure how, how you would do that because we do have so many fail safes um, and options, I guess, to get away from people if we want to, you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. And 
we saw both sides of it in COVID. You know, you hear about people fighting over toilet paper. Mm -hmm. That's the negative side, right? Instead of being like, okay, hey, here's an like objectively, like I've got 15 rolls of toilet paper. I'm good for a little while here. You take this roll before we run out. Yeah. So we saw the bad side of that. But I'm sure there were also stories where people were doing the exact opposite of that. We're saying like, there's four rolls of toilet paper left on the shelf. I'll take one, you take one, you take one. And having that objective mindset of like fairness and community. And I'm sure that happened in a lot of places. We just didn't see it on the news where, you know, someone's getting knocked out over, you know, the last piece of steak or toilet paper. But I don't know. It's hard at that scale and that level. And yeah. There's also like just the underlying components of culture and how people are raised, the value systems we all hold. And yeah. you know, we need a common denominator from our culture and value systems. And I'm not sure we as a country have a common denominator there yeah. to at least get to. Yeah, I think that's a mistake that I mean, you understand quite clearly, but a lot of people make the mistake of trying to compare us or our policies to some very homogenous European country. And it's like, well, you know, their population's only a million or it's only like 13 million versus ours 330 with a whole melting pot of different races, ethnicities, religions, all of that. And so mm-hmm. when you have those different value systems or moral systems, it becomes very complicated. Like, okay, who gets to say what? Or, you know, where are these things kind of... Uh, conflict uh one thing that i you post you've written a lot about this um and shared some of these experiences with your kids and so i wonder as they get older uh you know what does it mean to to go out trapping with um, your daughter or uh because i've talked through this with my uh, wife you know we have such a outsider perspective of nature more broadly but hunting, farming, camping, because we didn't really do it much growing up. And I think it's a lot harder, and you can speak to this, trying to be an onset hunter as an adult rather than growing up learning it, going out with your uncles or, or father hunting. You have at least some base knowledge and base experiences uh, to call upon uh, versus, you know, I imagine with your kids, you're raising them and they're going to have these experiences. And it's going to be more normalized for them. So what are your thoughts with or approach to raising um, your kids in this lifestyle? Yeah. And that's one my wife and I talk about all the time because we don't know, frankly, like I think about had I grown up in a hunting family, maybe I would have loved it. Maybe I would have continued on, but I was still just an asshole kid like anybody else. Like there's a very high chance that if dad was trying to drag me out of the house when it was 15 degrees to go sit in a tree stand, Hmm. when I much rather would have been at home doing a video game or whatever else I wanted to do. I might've rejected it fully and then like yeah. held that belief forever. Um, so I'm trying to be objective with it. Like it's interesting to see my daughter. She's two and a half. She speaks full sentences. She loves it. She and my son would rather be outside than inside. They'd still cry when we bring them inside. They just want to be out exploring, playing. And I think for us, it's just letting our kids be kids, but we're fortunate that we're doing this in a an area where what's normal for them is just being outdoors. You know, yeah. for instance, I was on my trap line this morning with a, a buddy of mine and I shot a grouse and I came back uh, home, like right before we got on this call, walked upstairs to give it to my wife to start cleaning. And my daughter's like held her hands. up. She said grouse and she just wanted to hold it. And she just kind of held it. It was kind of weird. You know, she's like petting it. I'm like, <laughs> well, you know, it's dead, but you know, 
Yeah. She has a very good perception of like where our food comes from. Like she loves animals. She has like a pet beaver in her bed that she sleeps with. Mm-hmm. Not a real pet beaver, a yeah, stuffed beaver. Maybe be but clear. Good to clarify. Be <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, she has a stuffed beaver, but then she goes out beaver trapping with me and she'll see a dead beaver and she'll like touch it. And she'll be like, oh, cute. But then we like go through the process of like processing the animal and then eating the animal. And she doesn't seem to have a fear around it or an aversion. And for us, it's just, we have this lifestyle we're living now and we're going to continue doing that. You know, the thing that I am most fearful of is ever pushing them and doing what I kind of would have seen myself doing, like rejecting it. And mm-hmm. that's kind of out of our hands. Like they might reject it at some point. And again, the let me die learning, like I have to be okay with that. And I am okay with that. It's not something I grew up with. It's not a, it's not my identity. If they yeah. want to go live in a big city, like I, I love visiting and getting to eat sushi and mm-hmm. like at a great place. It's fantastic. Um, but it's an experiment. Everything here is an experiment. That's kind of really what it comes down to. Like my hypothesis is we can live a happier, more fulfilled life, but that hypothesis could be invalidated at any point. You know, we could have our third baby and God forbid, you know, if there's a health issue, yeah, we might have to pack up our bags, close our cabin down and say, you know, that was a great point in our lives. And we need to live in a city where we can be near a hospital. I hate to even put that out there, but there are real instances where stuff like that happens. Mm-hmm. And we have to be flexible with our lives and understand what our real motivations are, which is raising well-functioning, beautiful, exploratory kids. And that's our main goal. And we're not going to try to get lost in the weeds along the way to say, we have to do it this way mm-hmm. in order to fulfill on that dream, which is, again, raising a great family. Last question for you in regards to living off the grid, wilderness, all that. What is it, if you can put it into words, about this lifestyle, about nature that breathes life, meaning, and purpose back into your spirit, into your soul, whereas your past pursuits of ultra running or business success and finances wasn't scratching that itch? Let me say they're not mutually exclusive. Like, uh-huh. yeah, I, I signed up for a hundred miler last year and I bailed on it because um, I wasn't able to get enough training in. Mm-hmm. So like there are still those elements of pushing yourself outside of even just kind of like this pseudo homesteading lifestyle that still scratch the itch. You know, I still do jujitsu when I'm in town, you know, I, I do different things and I still aim to be successful in business. Like the, yeah. that, hasn't changed yeah there's still typical modern society things that i do want to aspire to but what i have found is by living closer to the land like this morning getting to go out and run a seven mile trap line you know i get to stop for a moment and look out at the sawtooth wilderness from this big peak where i'm working on this cage trap trying to figure out what this animal's doing and it's not doing what I would want it or expect it to. And realizing how small I am every day. And again, you kind of get that in ultra running, you get that in jujitsu is like how fragile things are, mm-hmm. you know, what's really important, but I get that every day out here. And for me, that's kept me so grounded is like, I can walk out of my cabin 
I get out of the range of the Starlink Wi-Fi and I have no cell service. So I leave for a few hours and I'm on my own. I will suffer consequences for any action I take. And I get to feel that connectedness of our ancestors, of people who came before us who were kind of explorers in a much more bubble wrap way, of course. But that Mm -hmm. essence is what I get every day. And that helps drive all those other endeavors that I still seek to succeed at. And it's just like a superpower for me. It's like chia seeds for uh, (laughs) my soul. Yeah. Listening to that and then reflecting upon, again, what I've gotten out of ultra running or the rare moments, like you mentioned, where you go out and you have no cellular service and you're because of that, you're not constantly checking your phone yep. is it seems like it, it can be summarized under three like uh, requirements, basically, is you need some element of risk and whether that be risk of freezing to death or <laughs> risk of uh, pain and suffering DNFing in a uh, ultra race or something like that. You need some element of humility of, of reduction of the ego, reminding yourself how small uh, and fragile you are. Uh, and then at the same time, you need some element of narrowing your mind on a particular task and, mm-hmm. and less distraction, less outside noise, uh, which I think we have excessive amounts of uh, in obviously this modern world with constant information, constant things and wars to worry about that really, yes, in a way you can say they have an impact on us, but on a, on a day-to-day perspective here in America, uh, they really don't. Um, and yet we, we, you know, have ourselves and our, our minds occupied and filled with anxieties and fears around that. Um, so as long as you have that risk, that humility, and that kind of narrowed in purpose and, and task at hand, uh, I think you get, you get your soul kind of enlightened a little bit there. Um, transitioning to the work you do with machine learning and artificial intelligence, what did AI mean when you were kind of getting into it and where has the kind of like the perspective or the like net of AI included nowadays? Uh, it's an interesting question because it hasn't changed that much. What has changed is the public's perception, the public's exposure to what can be possible. And, and I'm thinking specifically with large language models like yeah, chat GPT, everything yeah. like that. Like it, you can see the application now. So when I got into AI 10 years ago, I didn't come from a technical background. So it was a lot of learning by doing. Um, but I tell people too, like the math for artificial intelligence has been there since the 50s. Like it is not a new phenomenon. It's not a new area of study. There've been PhDs have been working on AI machine learning for decades on decades on decades. What has changed recently is the compute power uh, that we were able to leverage and the data that we now have to be able to build an effective model that can do some pretty interesting things like chat GPT, you know, building great content, um, you know, Dolly with like the image creation. Mm-hmm. It, it is now in a place where there are more applications and it doesn't necessarily break the bank. Like that was a problem before in the last 10 years I've been working, you could have a great model, you could do a lot of things, but oftentimes it was not a financially viable solution. Like you would break the bank and not get the ROI on what you wanted to implement. So I don't think much has changed. Like I am not a bullish guy on saying the robots are gonna take over anytime soon. 
everything is still trained on data that is produced by humans who are inevitably infallible um, and that causes strife. But I, I don't think we're going to see some huge life altering shift beyond what we've already seen with, you know, people being able to use prompts to, you know, help out with their email writing or mm-hmm. putting together a presentation or making some cool artwork. I just don't foresee that being an imminent doom for us from an AI perspective. Where I've seen AI, and everybody knows it, have a, a negative impact on society is distortion of reality. And when people lose a questioning mindset, like there could be some false headline or false news story created to push a certain agenda that is pushed out and people take it at face value and they stop questioning. And they're like, yep, that's truth. And it might just be a complete fabrication from some model that puts something together from a prompt that somebody was trying to push people in a certain way. What has kept me balanced, and one reason I have found myself where I'm at, is if you go outside with no cell phone service, you're in nature, you're up against consequences, or you're trying to find an animal, or you're trying to just hike a tough trail, or you're trying to run an ultra marathon up through Bear Lake in Utah, like that's reality. And having a grounding in reality and like what is truly real helps you continue to have that questioning mindset when you come back in and you're getting waterboarded with all sorts of information 24 seven through your Instagram, through your TikTok, through your email, through your website browsing, through everything, you are forced into this mindset of either going with the flow and just accepting everything at face value, or you're taking a cognitive load to prove those things false, which is the right approach, right? You're like, you see something, you're like, is that really true? And then you have to do research and figure it out. And it becomes this mm-hmm. cognitive load you have to take on. And that's okay. That's the world we live in. But the ability to step away from that quickly and just be in something that is just unquestionably real, sticks, rocks, river, steep hill, you know, danger, whatever. I think it really is something we have to have right now to keep our minds balanced because if you're only stuck in this world of you know AI generated content or even real content that has a certain agenda to it like it's going to wear you down. I don't think we were built as humans from a mental perspective to be able to handle that. And just touching nature for me it has helped me find my own balance. Yeah, I I like that you articulated that, and that's something that also we see. Uh, <laughs> one thing that seems like an interesting phenomenon I see, and I somewhat participated in growing up, is uh, people getting a artificial experience through like someone else living it. Here's a better way to articulate: is just pure examples. Like, there's a bunch of reaction videos to people like or, or, or people playing a video game, and you're watching someone else play the video game and you're getting that experience as if you're playing, you're still getting that like dopamine or that excitement. Um, And it's fascinating. And it's kind of in the same way too, with there was a lot of chatter about the metaverse when that was first announced, like whether it was going to be a big deal. And because again, they can simulate a lot of the haptic, you know, signals and a lot of our senses and all of that. And it only get way better 10 years from now and, and so forth. But uh, there is still just like an element of like realness um, that I don't I don't know if 
AI will fully be able to encapsulate or if people, at least most people, will want to replace reality with that, even if they can. Because again, as we spoke about that element of risk of consequences uh, and, and mistakes, quite frankly, get eliminated. Yeah. And we're all unique. And this might be ego. I know we always try to bury the ego and everything else, but when I played with chat GPT, and maybe it's because I'm a writer and I like to write things, but mm-hmm. you know, I'll experiment with some things just to see what would come out. And again, probably pure ego, but I'm like, man, I don't know if I would have said it that way. Like it's good, but is that a real true representation of me as a unique individual? Yeah. Getting close, but I, I don't feel it. I'm not sold. I'm not bought in that that's Zach, right? There's mm-hmm. a certain flair or a certain way that I want to articulate something that I can't fully rely on a machine for in my mind. Yeah. Well, man, I've enjoyed this conversation thoroughly and I'm definitely going to have a few conversations or questions for you after this, but uh, where can people find you? Where can they find the book? And I know you have another book as well on uh, artificial intelligence. Yeah. So everything's on Amazon. So Zachary Craig Hansen, I've got a book on AI. I've got Turning Feral. I've got a few historical fictions on Idaho history, which is kind of like Quentin Tarantino meets Louis L'Amour. So if you're into like violent Westerns, it's a fun little read called The Bone Scraper. Um, I do have an Instagram now, pretty recent edition there. So at Let Me Die Learning. And then I do a daily devotional kind of for folks who are looking to live a more self-sustainable lifestyle and Substack, which is also at Let Me Die Learning. Awesome. I appreciate it again. If you guys enjoyed this, share the show, follow for more, and I'll catch you guys in the next one.